You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So in chapter 12, we've seen this a little bit in Revelation. It's one of these chapters where we get to peer behind the curtain, if I could say it like that, and we get to see into the spiritual realm of this world and see what is really going on. And when we do this, it'll help you understand a lot of what is happening, has happened in history, and will happen in the future that we see playing out in the world before us, that many people are involved in, yet they do not know what is actually transpiring because they don't have the spiritual eyes to see. The Word of God gives us this. So this is what we're going to look at. Particularly this chapter, we'll be dealing with the reason for anti-Semitism. That is one of the the main topics of this chapter in Revelation chapter 12. Anti-Semitism, of course, hopefully needs no explanation. This is hatred of the Jewish people, and we will see what is going on behind the scenes as we study this. And it's actually, to me, worked out quite amazing. She had a big break from Revelation and we're back in it now. And it just so happens that we are studying this chapter, this month and this week for a number of important calendar events that I will make clear as we go through. But to begin with, let me show you this. This is a forest on the outskirts of Jerusalem, just west of Jerusalem. And it's called the Martyrs Forest. And it's actually the world's largest memorial to the Holocaust in the world. It has over 6 million trees that were planted specifically as a memorial for all the Jewish people that died there. I think there's a one and a half million pine trees and another type of tree for the adults and for the children who perished in the Holocaust. And if you go there today, right at the center of this forest are what are known as the Scrolls of Fire. So these are two massive bronze sculptures. I think they're like 13 feet high and on them is obviously carvings and they tell the story of the Jewish people primarily through two events. If you notice, they are obviously designed to look like Torah scrolls. So a nod to the Jewish people being the people of the book as they're often referred to. And then on one side, it has depictions of the events of the Holocaust. And on the other side, it has depictions of the event of the rebirth of Israel. And if you can see, you can just about walk in between them. If you go many years, I saw these many years ago, but there's a, a little plaque right in the bottom base there in the middle. And on that plaque, they have a couple of verses from the Bible. They're from Ezekiel 37, verse 12. It says, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And then verse 14 is on the other side. It says, I will put my spirit within you and, will, and you will come to life and I will place you on land and then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. And it's fascinating that we have these verses on here. It reminds us that these issues are ultimately theological issues as much as they are political or social issues. We have to understand the spiritual stuff going on behind there and Revelation chapter 12 will enlighten us on this. Now, I mentioned this, we're studying it this week. I don't know if many of you know, but it was Yom Hashem. It was the Holocaust Memorial Day this Thursday, just gone this week. And that means that in the land of Israel, at a certain time, the sirens blow and the whole country stops. It's very common. People will just stop their cars immediately on the motorways and they all get out and everyone will remember that, to just have a moment of silence to remember that catastrophe. This is what I want us to dig into a little bit now this morning. And of course, some of this history is quite hard, but hopefully you'll understand where I'm going with this. This is where the text is leading us as we move through this chapter. 
we want to see what has been called the unseen war. There was a famous expositor in the, in the 20th century, Donald Gray Barnhouse. He wrote a book called The Unseen War. And this, I'm kind of using that as a nod to him there. It's a very good book. And this is the kind of thing he's talking about. It's been rightly said that anti-Semitism is the longest hatred. And what they mean by that is basically that it's one of these forms of evil that seems to stretch back right to the beginning and continues right to the end. And of course, there are many other forms of evil and racism that we could look at and point to, but there is something very unique about anti-Semitism, and this chapter is going to deal with that for us. So let's read, let's just read our text for the first five verses of Revelation 12, and then we'll make comment on that. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labour, and in pain to give birth. And then another sign appeared in the heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, she might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So these are our verses, as you can see what I mean there. They're obviously symbolic here. So you'll notice John here, it says, sees a great sign. And this is, again, the same word that we read in the beginning of Revelation. It means to be signified. And it is telling us here that these are going to be symbolic or figurative images that we see, although they are conveying very, very real truths. It signifies things that are not directly stated in the text, but it is teaching real truths nonetheless. The task of the expositor here is to correct, correctly identify these symbols. That's what we will do this morning. Now, it's not actually that difficult. You just need to really pay attention to the text. The Bible is its own best interpreter. And most of these symbols are usually explained either within the same book by a different author or somewhere else in the Bible. So let's have a look at these. The first one, a great sign in the heavens, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, unfortunately, many people go wrong straight away here. They start off wrong and then the whole chapter goes wrong from that correct understanding. If you have a Roman Catholic background, you might be very familiar with pictures like this. Marian apparitions, there's, you know, these are pointed, you understand she's got 12 stars around her head. They're getting that from this chapter here in Revelation 12, and they see this, the woman, Mary. And if you've been with us through our studies, we've, we've looked at this in a little bit of depth. We made, the, we made the case that this is not Miriam, the Jewish lady who gave birth to the Messiah back in Israel. This is what we would call the Queen of Heaven. And it is an idol, and you see this Marian apparition appearing to Catholics all around the world. This here is actually an image of a Marian apparition with the, with the crown on her head, the Queen of Heaven, and the 12 stars. And this is where we get that from. Now, interestingly, I won't go into this too much because I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes. You recognize this. This is the EU flag. Now, again, I'm, I've looked into this quite thoroughly. I'm not just making a, a, a unique association. The 12 stars on the, the European flag were designed by the artist who was commissioned by the European Commission. He was a Marianne devotee, and he specifically designed the flag to represent those 12 stars. 
And you can see today, the 12 stars have nothing to do with member states or anything like that. They come from the artist who designed the flag and he was a Marianne devotee. And there's much more to it to that. But I, I find this fascinating because we've been studying the book of Revelation. We're gonna, we've been talking about the convergence of government and nations coming together under the ruler of different people, one man in particular. And here we have a flag that is flying over the whole of Europe. In 1983, this flag was adopted by the European Parliament. And quote, you can go on the website. I read this just last night. It says the European flag has since become synonymous with a shared political project which unites all Europeans, transcending their diversity. And obviously, we've been studying where this is going to lead. You almost really couldn't make this stuff up, but this is how it is. But that's one identification. That's not actually the identification I'm going to make. I find it fascinating that this is a wrong identification, one that actually puts Mary in the place of, of someone else who should be the correct identification. So it's almost like we have this banner is supposed to unite all people under the Queen of Heaven because this is her crown in that interpretation. It's a false understanding and it's wrong and it's pointing us towards the future of the prophecies of Daniel, I believe. But that's maybe for another time. We'll get into that in a lot of depth. Remember, the woman is not literal woman here. It's not Mary. It's a symbol. We've already had that pointed out to us in the text here. It's not a literal woman. Now, if you look at chapter five, we get another clue. Verse five, we should get a clue here. Look at verse five. And she gave birth to a son, a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, again, remember I said, look for clues in the text. You get the clue here. The one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's your clue there for who this identification is. That is a reference to Psalm chapter 2. Let me read the text to you. Psalm chapter 2, a messianic psalm. It says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. It's one of those unusual Psalms where you get an insight into God the Father giving the commission to God the Son. And this, this concept of the rod of iron, Jesus ruling from the throne, rule, ruling in righteousness and justice on the earth with, that, with the authority to do it. That's what this text is referring to. We clearly know that the child talked about in Revelation 12 is the Messiah. So that should help us in the identification of the woman. Now, you can see why people would say that's Mary. Obviously, you can kind of see where they're going with that. But that is not actually entirely accurate because now we have to actually where the symbolism comes from. But before we do that, I want to give us one more false interpretation because it's probably the one that you'll hear in most, most Christian teachings on this subject and is one that has really come about due to the unfortunate teaching of replacement theology, something I've talked about many times from this pulpit. Hopefully, by the end of this chapter, you'll see why I talk about it a lot. Replacement theology is the view that teaches that God has finished the people of Israel. His covenant, therefore, has been annulled. The church has taken their place, and everything is spiritually fulfilled in the church. Let me give you an example of how this plays out for Revelation chapter 12. You've probably heard of N.T. Wright before, Tom Wright, leading Anglican theologian in this country, extremely popular at the moment. He, he has a commentary series, like his popular level commentary. He's a very a smart academic, but he has a popular level commentary series called the For Everyone Bible Commentaries. This is one that I, I 
I read, I always try and go through Revelation with a commentary that I generally disagree with at the same time, just because it helps you to formulate ideas too. And Tom Wright's one that I often use. This is what he says about the woman. He says, the woman, meanwhile, the faithful people of God remain in, in danger. This again can scarcely refer to Mary. John believes that since Jesus is Israel's Messiah, Israel is redefined around him. Now notice that, that's clever replacement theology talk there. I want you to be aware of that. Israel is redefined. You'll always see that. The promises are to be reinterpreted, Israel to be as redefined. What it basically means is they're getting rid of national Israel. That's a way of saying it. And then he goes on, he says, so that the woman who flees into the wilderness must be the church itself. Okay, so these are two wrong interpretations. One being Mary, which is generally the European or the Roman Catholic view in many ways. And then we have the replacement theology view that the woman is in fact the church. Now, what's the problem with this? Remember, the child is Messiah. Does the church bring forth the Messiah? That's what the text says, that the woman brings forth the Messiah. Which came first, the Messiah or the church? It's actually complete opposite of what actually happened, isn't it? The Messiah gave birth to the church, if you could say it like that, not gave, but brought forth the church. Well, you couldn't have the church first. The church did not bring the Messiah into the world. So that, I believe, is also a false interpretation. Now, who did bring the Messiah into the world? This takes us all the way back to Genesis 12, the promises to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Promises to Abraham, confirmed to Isaac, that were confirmed to Jacob through the, to the nation of Israel. And obviously, promise there that all the nations will be blessed through the nation of Israel because they brought the Messiah into the world and the Messiah blessed the whole world. So it's Israel, basically. So the woman is Israel. We figured that out just really by way of elimination. We haven't even looked at the symbols in the text yet, which I will do now. The sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. So what are they? Many, again, much speculation, but as we've seen in Revelation, one thing if you take away from Revelation is that it's basically every other verse seems to be a reference to the Old Testament in some way. It's always quoting something from the Old Testament. This symbol is no other. This is referring us back to the dream in Genesis 37, five, verses 5 to 10. I will read it to you. This is the story of Joseph and his brothers. Verse 5, then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheep. And then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. That's by way of context. And then look at verse 9 and the rest. Now he still had another dream, and related it to his brothers, and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? So clearly here we see that Jacob identifies the symbols for us in the text. He sees it as being himself, his wife Rachel, and his eleven sons. And obviously 11 adds Joseph into the mix. That's your 12 sons. That's your 12 stars there. So specifically what we have in Revelation is the woman giving birth. This is Israel 
picture of Israel bringing the Messiah into the world. Okay, it's not actually that complicated when you understand how Revelation works. That's what we have here. So let's look at verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Symbolism's a little easier here for the dragon. Look down to verse 9. The text identifies it for us. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. Quite a simple identification there. Now, the symbolism of the ten heads, the seven heads and the ten horns, and the seven crowns on those heads are a little more complicated. I don't want to actually go into all of it now, because it would, it's a whole other study in and of itself. I will read the text where it comes from to show us that, again, it's nothing new. It's just pointing us back to an Old Testament text. And then I'll, I'll briefly sort of summarize what is going on here without derailing us too much. But the, the reference to horns and heads is obviously referring us back to the prophecies of Daniel. If you know the prophecies of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, let me read to you the text and you'll see where this is getting. Daniel's prophesying about world empires that are going to come upon the earth from his time to the end. And he says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great roasts. This is the man we've been studying over the past few weeks in many ways. Then let's jump down to verse 23, Daniel 7. And thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high, wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in time and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, time and half a time. There's that phrase that I keep telling you to look out for, the time period, the three and a half years that we keep speaking of. Again, right back in the book of Daniel. Now, again, it's too much to go into now. Let me summarize it for you. This is an amazing prophecy from the book of Daniel, where he is basically predicting the succession of world empires that Daniel and the, the Jewish people will see at this time, right up until actually talking about the empire that will be around in the final days that we are studying in the book of Revelation. And one day they will all be combined under the ruler of this person called the beast, or as we have called him, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin. It says it will take the form of a 10 king led coalition of global governments. There seems to be another king that rises up, has a fight, kills three of them. That obviously leaves them with seven kings. This is where Revelation is getting it from, the seven heads and the 10 horns. It's from the prophecies of Daniel. So without getting into who these are or what they are too much, let me basically summarize what we have here. The seven kings will rule over everything, but because we've just read in Revelation, we are on the head of the dragon. It's telling us that the dragon is in charge of all of these governments, basically. He is the god of this world, as it says in Corinthians, isn't it? Small g, obviously, for that concept. The prince of the power of the air. Satan is in charge and pulling the strings behind these things. This is what is going on here. That is the reference we have to the dragon. So we have in this symbolism so far, the woman, Israel, giving birth to the male child, Messiah, who will one day rule the earth. 
But at this time, we also have the dragon, and he's the one who at the moment is controlling many things in this world. Notice, let's get back to Revelation now in verse 4. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now, I don't want to go into that too much again. Basically, most people assume that this is, seems to be implying that when Satan did rebel, he managed to persuade a number of the heavenly body beings to rebel with him. And they joined him in this rebellion. It's, it's a hard passage to really interpret. That seems to be the best way. But then it's the next bit that I really want to focus our attention on, which is what I'm talking about, the unseen war. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give so that when she gave she might devour her child. So if we've got our interpretation right, the dragon, Satan, is waiting for the Messiah to be born so that he can kill the Messiah. And this is the unseen war that we see. So let me summarize the symbolism so far. And then we're going to go through a bit of world history to show you how this is actually, in fact, true and is playing out before our eyes. The woman, Israel, created to bring forth the Messiah. The Messiah would one day be the one who would defeat the dragon, who would defeat Satan. Satan is the one at this current time who controls much of the fallen world governments. The dragon is in a long-standing war with God. He knew that his adversary would one day come through the seed of the woman. So from the beginning... The dragon has anticipated the arrival of the Messiah, and he has been trying to stop that from happening. Okay, quite simply. The story of the Bible can really be understood through these two motifs. God's promise to bring a Messiah into the world through Israel, and Satan's attempt to stop that happening. If you really want to simplify it to the war going on behind the scenes, this is the unseen war. Of course, we have the word of God, we know how it ends, but if this is true, the word of God is true, as we claim it is true, we should be able to look around history and see this unseen war manifesting in physical ways. Because truth corresponds to reality, and we are claiming this is true reality, we should be able to see this happening. And this is exactly what we do see. Of course, like I said, most people don't realize this because they, they don't see with biblical lenses or spiritual eyes, as we say. Now let's go through this and look at this. When did Satan first hear about this male child who was going to destroy him. This is the very beginning of the Bible. This is not like this is something new to Revelation. Like I said, it's taking us right back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right after Satan had success in tempting Adam and Eve, and there was the promise given. I'll read part of it. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is really the first promise of Messiah that we see right back in the garden, right back in the early days, the Garden of Eden. So immediately, this is the first time Satan would have been there. He, he, he knew he heard this promise. This is where he puts his unseen war into motion. This is exactly why. What happens after Genesis chapter 3? Genesis chapter 4. What happens in Genesis chapter 4? You get the first murder. But let's understand why we get the first murder. What is actually happening here? Genesis 4, verse 8. So Satan's first strategy now. He knows that he has basically had a, a defeat sentence pronounced among him. And he knows that it will come at this stage just through the seed of a woman. Not through Israel at this time. Israel doesn't exist. But through the seed of a woman. So therefore, he has... Well, let's we read to you. Genesis 4, verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. 
Now, 1 John chapter 3, same author who wrote Revelation, gives us a little bit more information about this. Listen, this is important. 1 John 3, verse 11 to 12. For this is a message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now understand what's going on here. It says Satan was, Cain was of the evil one. That means Satan was in his thoughts. So surely the Messiah, that so Satan knew rather, that if he had Cain, then Abel was the righteous one. His sacrifice was accepted. Therefore, he would be the line through which the, the male child would come who was going to destroy Satan. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to stop this right now. This pro I'm going to put an end to this right now. I'm going to get Cain to kill Abel. And now, we, in the human perspective, Cain was jealous of Abel. Unseen war behind it, Satan is act enacting his plan, his strategy to try and stop this male child coming into the world. This is the history of the world, really, behind the scenes. This is what's happening here. That's why. And we can read the Bible in this light. You get to Genesis chapter 6, that very unusual passage that no one likes to talk about, Genesis, Genesis 6, the Nephilim. Again, it's the same strategy. He knows that the male child is coming through the human line. His next strategy, he wants to try and corrupt the human line. And that's what the flood and all these things are about in many ways. Let's go a little bit further into history. Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham, and of course confirmed to Isaac and Jacob. So we know now it's not just mankind like he was in Cain and Abel's day. The promise of the male child is now narrowed down to one particular family, the family of Israel. So therefore, is Israel, who is Satan going to attack the most to try and stop that happening? Israel. Like I said, this is the unseen war. This is the reason for anti-Semitism in this world. And you see it immediately again in the Bible. Exodus chapter 1. Remember the story, Joseph and all the brothers go into Israel, into Egypt, and they grow in number. And the Pharaoh starts getting nervous that what's going to happen? There's too many of them now. We need to start killing them. That's the human side. The spiritual side behind it, Satan as God of this world, controlling the Pharaoh in this respect. He wants to kill the race of the Hebrews because he knows the male child is going to come through them and destroy him. So what does he do? He has the Pharaoh. He orders all the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male Israelites as soon as they are born. Of course, the faithful women, Hebrews, midwives do not do that. And then he says, right, throw them all into the Nile instead. It's, it's, this is unusual, but this is what we see again and again and again. Behind this is Satan's attempt to stop the Messiah coming into the world. Now, he came close many times. He had other, other strategies. It wasn't just sometimes he wasn't trying to kill Israel. He wanted to corrupt them. He wanted to bring foreign gods into their midst to make sure that they were not following the Lord, to make sure all of these things are interpreted through the light of Satan's unseen war. He came very close a few times. Do you remember the story in Second Chronicles 22? The evil queen Atalia, she was Azahai's mother. She used to the throne. And in order to try and keep the throne, she decided I'm going to destroy every descendant of the royal line of Judah. And she sent her troops out and she went on a hunting spree and she almost killed every heir. But for one faithful priest and his wife who hid one of the sons, and that was the line of Judah. That is eventually the line through which the Messiah would come. So you, you see this war playing out in history as we see this going on. The story of Esther. We see it again. The Persian Empire this time. A wicked man named Haman. We studied this at Purim recently, didn't we? He wanted again to exterminate the entire Jewish race. Now for him, it was 
hatred and evil and he was jealous of Mordecai. Behind the scenes was again Satan trying to enact his plan here, the unseen war, to stop the Messiah coming into the world. A little bit further, now into the Greek Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes, this man who hated the Jews, again, destroyed, desecrated the temple, destroyed the Jews, did many horrible things, which led to the Maccabean Rebellion. It's the same thing going on here. Now, we know that he didn't manage to stop the rise. This is what makes the Christmas story so amazing. If you can imagine it through the eyes of this unseen war, again and again and again, Satan is trying and trying and trying, and every time he's failing and failing and failing, it's almost like everything he does is unstoppable, and it keeps going. And then that's why when we have this just very humble scene of this baby being born in a manger, it's one of the most miraculous, amazing events in the, all of human history. Because at that moment, Satan must have been like, tried and tried and tried, I'm just not winning, and now the Messiah's here. He didn't stop, did he? What did he do? We see an attempt to try and eradicate that child. He used Herod this time, preyed on the insecurities of Herod that there was another king coming and he said, right, go and kill every Bethlehem, every baby in Bethlehem up to two years old. We'll get rid of all of them. Behind that is the unseen war. This is Satan going, this is Satan again, trying to do that. Now this should tell us something. How much does Satan not want the, the world to have the Messiah? How important is the Messiah to the world? He's everything. This is what we're going on here through this story. He could not stop it. Now imagine how Satan finally felt when he got Jesus on the cross. He must have really thought, because he tried to kill Jesus a lot of times. Right, This was his next strategy. Right, the Messiah's here. Can't do that. Now I've got to try and get rid of the Messiah. And eventually he gets things to happen. Well, he, he thinks he's doing it. Obviously the Lord is, is uh, in charge of all this in the larger sense. But Messiah is put on the cross. Satan obviously thought at that moment, finally, I've done it. This is it. He was the one who was supposed to crush my head. He's not going to crush my head now. And then, so you, can you imagine the impact of the resurrection on him? That three days later, little did he know, he was playing right into the hands of the Lord. You see, the Lord knows everything. He, Satan is no match for the Lord. He is created by the Lord. But in, in his pride, Satan does not really understand. He's not thinking straight. We've talked about the, the deceptive nature of pride in that way. He failed to prevent this. His strategy sort of shifts a bit here because we're not just talking of the first coming Messiah. He knows ultimately the Messiah will crush him. But as we've read in Revelation 12 and numerous other passages, it speaks of this in the context of the second coming. The one who comes with the rod of iron. The second coming is also involved in this. But he also knows that the Messiah does not come back until Israel repents and petitions him to come back. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a command to Israel. So Satan now has understood a few other different things and he switches tactics a little bit. He obviously hasn't done too well with the Messiah. What he wants to do now is stop the second coming because that's when he's actually going to get his defeat. We read about it just last week in Revelation, Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. That's the time where the God of this world, Satan, is defeated and everything is handed over to the real king. Satan's now trying to stop that happening. He wants to prevent this. So again, he knows he has to stop and destroy Israel from petitioning his return. It's the same strategy. It's just shifted gears a little bit. Now, but for the sake of time, I could go through many more historical examples that are seen through the unseen war of Satan's strategy trying to do this. 
I'll give you a few more as we go through, but again, another study all in itself. Now, unfortunately, the church is not innocent in this. Unfortunately, one of the people the church, what the Satan wants to deceive the most is the church, and he has had some good opportunities to do that. Anti-Semitism changed its face in about the third century, and it morphed, as it often does, into theological anti-Semitism. And the church, unfortunately, became one of the worst offenders of this. I've actually written a whole book on this, if you're interested, called Why the Jewish People, where I, where I explain the history and the doctrine behind this a lot more. But in about the third century, the doctrine of replacement theology entered the church for a number of different reasons, and that doctrine has led to some very shameful history. In a nutshell, it teaches that God is finished with Israel, no plan or purpose for them, and as Augustine put it, they are to be a constant witness on this earth, never having a home, always to be an example of what happens when you do what the Jews did. And obviously an attitude like that, of course, when they're hurt or persecuted, not many people care. That is the understanding. But I want you to see this history through the eyes of the unseen war going on behind it. Remember, Satan failed in his strategy to corrupt the human race. He failed in his strategy to stop the Messiah coming. Now he's trying to stop the second coming happening where he gets his final comeuppance. And to do that, he has to destroy Israel equally. So this is, again, the target that we see. Now, I mentioned that it's unusual that we're doing this study in this particular Sunday because of Holocaust Memorial Day. Another date I'm sure you're all aware of. It is the 800th anniversary of the Synod of Oxford in 1222 this month. Well, it's fun for your calendar, day. But actually, there's actually quite a big thing being made of it. Let me explain it to you. It's actually quite, quite a significant thing. There is a meeting going on, I think, in two weeks' time in Oxford. It's a, me a meeting of repentance to basically the Anglican Church, this is, apologizing for this synod in 1222 for what it did and for much of the history that came from it. You'll find there's quite a few articles about it at the, mo at the moment. I actually was invited to go to this repentance ceremony. I'm going to decline. I don't claim any allegiance to the Anglican Church in that sense and, and what they did, but it would be quite interesting to see, but this is what we have here going on. Now, the Synod of Oxford was commissioned, this is a church council basically, by a man called Stephen Langton. If you're a Bible student, you might know that name. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury at this time. He was also the man responsible, really, for bringing the Magna Carta to England. And the Magna Carta was done a lot of, that was you know, King John and all that sort of thing. He was the man who was responsible for brokering the Magna Carta and giving, taking power away from the king and giving it to the people in that respect. But, and he was also the man who put the chapter divisions in your Bible. So those divisions that you're reading, this was Stephen Langton who put them in there around this time, in fact. But he was also the man who commissioned the Synod of Oxford. Now, what the Synod of Oxford did is it enacted huge amounts of anti-Jewish laws. The, the notorious badge of shame for English Jews was from the Synod of Oxford. This was a precursor to the yellow star that we see in Europe a little bit later. This wasn't a star. This was a white symbol of the Ten Commandments. They had to wear it on their clothes. That was Anglican canon law that instituted that. They also stopped any building of synagogues in England. They stopped, by, by canon law, social interaction between Jews and Christians. If you're a Christian, you could not be friends with a Jew or else you would be excommunicated from the church. They banned Jews from going out in public over Easter. Remember, we did our Easter study. I told you, Easter is Passover. It's a Jewish feast, right? But Jews were banned from showing their face 
wherever Christians were in England at this time. This was canon law. And to top the whole conference off, they, they sent one of their own deacons who converted to Judaism to start the conference. This is the danger when you mix politics with Christianity in this sort of state-inspired way, you see. And I, I'm sharing this with you because I believe we will see this again in these final times with this man called the Beast, who will once again use religion in many, many ways. And I, I find this to be absolutely abhorrent from a biblical perspective, but again, the unseen war is what I'm getting at here. Satan has his hands on these things. The way we know this is obviously through the light of the word of God. This is how we keep our path straight in these things, the light of the word of God. If you read the word of God, you would have known that we worship a Jewish Messiah, that salvation is from the Jews, that the apostle Paul says, I belong for my people to be saved, that we are to bless the Jews and these sorts of things. It's quite simple when we look at it in hindsight, but obviously remember Bibles were not all over the place. It was a different world back then. I'm not making excuses, but I want you to understand the history. It's so very important. We need to understand the roots of the Bible. And hopefully when you see some of this history, you'll understand why I spend so long mentioning things like this, because I believe we need to counteract this in our day in the church. Now let's jump to the 20th century. We see the unseen war break forth in a way that it really hasn't done before on this earth. This is what many people have been doing around the world. So the Holocaust, over 6 million people died. The lessons of the Holocaust, I believe, teach us much about the last days. You remember I said that the Apostle John, in one of his epistles, he said that although we're talking of this final man to come, the Antichrist as he calls him, he says the spirit of Antichrist is already here. And the unseen war is how we understand that, the man energizing all of this behind it, Satan, of course. So therefore there are events in history where we should be able to see this spirit manifest in the and learn a lot about what is to come. And I believe this is one of those times when we do it. Again, it's a whole study on itself, but it is in many ways, as tragic as it is, it's fascinating when you look at how Hitler rose to power, because I believe it does in many ways point to the same sort of thing that we will see studying through Revelation. He had to have three different things at his disposal to do that. First, he had to have politics. He used politics and he was extremely good at it. He had a small party, really. Not many Germans were National Socialists at this time, but he managed to make sure that the government signed him dictatorial power through an enabling act. And he had various events that he's responsible for that led him to that. He also had to have science on his side. The role of the medical establishment in Germany at the time was extremely important. This was social Darwinism at the time, eugenics, the Aryan race and purebred science. This was what was going on at the time. He had to have all the, med the medics on board to do that. And he did. He got them all on board. And then he also used religion too. He despised Christianity, but he realized until he had dictatorial power, he needed to appear like he was playing ball with the church. In fact, so he ended up saying, yep, that's fine. You can carry on worshiping. Oh, by the way, here's my priest. I want him to be in charge of this church right now. And he, and he gradually just took over all these institutions. So that the moment he managed to get the politics to sign him over the laws, he turned on everyone and whoever did not, whoever dissented on anything disappeared. That was it. That's how he did it. And it's a fascinating study because as we move through Revelation, we're going to meet someone in the next chapter called the false prophet, which is the same thing. False religion. We're going to see governments, false politics. We're going to see economics used in this sense. We're going to see all of these things converging again 
And it is fascinating to see them, even in our day, the, the footprints of them developing. This is why, again, it's the unseen war. One of the things you're going to see as we move to the back of Revelation is when, or this chapter, in fact, when Satan has his last attempt, he goes, almost goes crazy. It says he's with great wrath. He comes down to the earth. And what does he do? He tries to destroy the people of the woman again. He wants to, it's his final attempt to stop the second coming happen. He wants to destroy all of the Jewish people until they petition his return. This is really history here that we see going on. And this is not just back in the 20th, you know, early 20th century. This is still going on today. 47% of Jews today polled just this last month that another Holocaust is coming very soon. That's the general thing in Israel, right? Just this week, Iran threatened Israel again by unveiling what they called their Khaibar Buster Missile. And again, they said that Israel is sowing the seeds for their own destruction. And again, I'm not again interested in the geopolitics of this. Remember, that's the, that's the human side of it that we see. I want you to see behind that to understand what is actually going on in the unseen war. The Khyber Buster missile is a long-range missile that apparently can reach into Israel. It's a very interesting name. If you know, the Khyber was an ancient Jewish town in the Arabian Peninsula that was overrun and massacred by the Muslims in the 7th century. So it's a very pointed name there, obviously, that they're getting at with that. But that is the idea. This is what's going on in the world today. Again, think about it from the perspective of the unseen war in Revelation 12. Let me sum it up to you as we wrap this up. Now, we won't go any, any further with this. Satan knows that when Jesus returns, he will be cast into the lake of fire. That's it. He's done. He knows that Jesus will return to Jerusalem. We read that in the book of Zechariah, don't we? His feet will come and Jesus will touch down on the Mount of Olives. And he knows that he will return to Jerusalem when the Jews in Jerusalem petition him to return. Put yourself, I don't like to say this, but put yourself in, on Satan's side for a moment. And if you wanted to stop all that happening, what would you have to do? You don't want any Jews in Jerusalem. You don't want any Jews at all, in fact, in that to happen. Because that's, when that happens, that's going to spell your final doom. So what has he done? He has managed to surround Jerusalem with nations that adhere to a religion that is extremely anti-Semitic and many of whom have in their national political charters the desire and to call for the destruction of Israel. Now, regardless of the religion and the means that is involved in that, again, the unseen war behind it. If what we're saying is true, this is exactly what you should expect to see in the world. And it is exactly what we do see. This is what's going on in the world. There's no way that really that is a coincidence. There's no other reason why it should be like that. Why all this history that I've gone through right back to Genesis chapter 3 plays out like it does, except because of the promise of Messiah and Satan's attempt to try and stop. That is really what is going on in this world. And for me, fact alone is extremely good proof that the Bible is in fact true. We know that obviously for many reasons, but this is a good objective way that you can show using history that the Bible is truth. When you put your biblical glasses on, when you have a biblical worldview, the world does make a lot more sense. And it's such a shame in many ways to see the church not having proper biblical glasses and not understanding this because huge portions of the church are the ones who want to get all the Jewish people out of Israel too. I see this, many, again, written a book on that. You can see many, many examples responsible for much of that. But when you see it in the eyes of the unseen war, you can see really what is going on. However, let's remember, Satan has not ever and will not ever be able to thwart the promises of God.
It is in his own delusion that he tries. It is this is what pride does to us. He could not corrupt the line of the human race to stop the Messiah coming into the world. He could not stop Messiah from rising from the dead, defeating death. He cannot stop people who believe in Messiah from escaping his clutches and becoming citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He could not destroy the Jews in history. He will not destroy the Jews in the present or in the future. He will not be able to stop the second coming. That male child, that glorified Lord as we know him now, will come back and crush his head. He will come and rule the nations with that rod, that scepter of righteousness and justice, and it will be a time that we know as the kingdom of God. And Satan will not stop. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.